the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show as every single week. This is the hour for the nerds. This is the hour for people who love science. Whether you tell your friends or not, I know you enjoy it. So we look at science around a news story and in general just for your life. My name is Elna Schutz. And while it's nice and warm here in South Africa, a lot of us have been watching some humans in big puffy jackets and sparkly leotards swirl around in the freezing cold of South Korea. Yes, it is the Winter Olympics. And I don't know about you, but... I really enjoy them, actually. I know we don't get snow here. Maybe that's exactly why I love looking at those people zoom around. Maybe it's just because I know that never in my life could I be that athletic. And you might think that it's incredible to see so much natural, wonderful, powdery snow. But in fact, almost 98%, if not all of the snow being used for the games is fake. Yup, is a scam. Well, not really. It's been the same at most games. I was very surprised to find out and the last Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, relied on at least 80% man-made snow. This isn't just because natural snow can be unpredictable, but because it's not necessarily the best thing to be zooming over with high speeds on a snowboard or ski. All the snow is being made out of a constructed lake. So the the water from a constructed lake is being used. And it holds almost 130 million liters of water and is fed by local rivers. So, of course, it is still winter there and real snow does fall. So they do need quite accurate weather predictions also. And for this... They don't just call in their, like, small Nyana weather service. No, the big guns. NASA is helping the Olympics. So they are collecting weather data during the Olympics by partnering with 20 agencies from about a dozen countries. And they'll be delivering these snow forecasts from 16 points near the Olympic event venues. And they're doing this to give accurate forecasts regularly, about every six hours to the game specifically. But there is a bigger thought behind this because it's also to improve their own snow prediction models for mountainous terrains in general, which can be very tough to get weather readings from. So there's a much bigger long-term effect of these, uh, this work that NASA is doing at the Games. And especially because it's estimated that one in six people in the world relies on the water from seasonal snowfall collected in the mountains. That is much higher than I thought. So our snow and our snowfall really is very important. It's clearly more than just a nice winter olympics for us all to watch because snow influences like i said drinking water but also tourism which can be the livelihood of certain areas and later in the show we look at this more closely including um, how climate change is influencing snowfall and how a technology pioneered in south african minds believe it or not is helping the problem also on the show in our unscience we're looking at how in the future exoplanets could be mined for their generous mineral properties including diamonds and then later we speak to professor robert miller from the university of pretoria just looking at the scientists behind the science as always you can find us as the science inside on facebook our whatsapp line 0840784912 send us a voice note there if you want to comment on the Winter Olympics about all of that fake snow, maybe have a question about snow, or you can't wait for in science in our, in our little segment on how diamonds are uh, on other planets, why don't you let us know there? Or you can tweet us at VowFM, hashtag science inside is a hashtag there. As always, we'll start off the show in just a moment with the news. This week's Science Headline. And as every single week, we have Bridget Lepere, our producer, with us just to update us on some uh, on some of the things that are happening in uh, in the news in terms of science. How are you, Bridget? I'm very well. And how are you, Elna? I'm pretty good. And I have a story for you today that I think is pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. 
Scientists have apparently created a new form of light. They've created light. How does someone create light? That is a very good question. When I saw this headline, I thought, wait a minute. Either you have light or you don't have light. ESCOM helps you or it doesn't help you. But you can't, you can't just create it from scratch, at least not a new kind. Um, but, yes, apparently it is possible. So, if you think about this, imagine you and I both have a flashlight and we're standing in a dark room. Think of the point where, where if we're both shining in a similar direction, where the beams cross, what happens? Mm, more light is created? Well, the thing is, nothing. Nothing, actually, because it's just two separate beams. And the reason why is photons don't interact with each other. And you might remember photons are the tiny energy particles that light is made up of. And they appear in bundles called quantums. I'm sure you've heard that word quantum quite a lot if you've ever heard of quantum computing. Mm -hmm. So photons just pass by each other. So even though you are making light and I am making light, those two flashlights aren't interacting or exploding where they meet or anything fancy like that. At least it's always seemed that way until now because scientists from universities like MIT and Harvard have just proven that idea wrong. So it's possible that light particles could be made to interact like atoms of other matter does. So they might be attracting and repelling each other. And it means that you could merge different beams of light into one or maybe even create some kind of confrontation. Although I would love for there to be a lightsaber like in Star Wars. I, I think probably not that. So basically what they've done is they've shone a very light laser beam, a very weak rather laser beam, through a very dense cloud of ultra-cold rubidium atoms. And they found that the photons that went through this cloud didn't come out as a single randomly spaced sort of photons but they came out in pairs and triplets so, th so there was something happening inside this cloud that made a single photon walk in and several photons walk wow. out as a little bundle and the other thing is photons normally have no mass and travel at the speed of light but this new kind of photonic matter so to say was much heavier and much slower so something is definitely changing here so now, why is this happening? That's a great question. And that's obviously one that the researchers wanted to understand. So they think that it might be that as a single photon moves through the cloud of, of this rubidium atom cloud, it briefly lands on a nearby atom before skipping to another one. You can kind of imagine sort of a bee hopping between flowers or a frog hopping between leaves. And as it lands on an atom, it makes a polariton which is a hybrid, like half photon, half atom. And two of these polaritons can interact with each other. And so the two photons that emerge with two atoms are having a party together. But when they leave the cloud, the rubidium atoms have to stay behind and say, sorry, guys. So the photons leave together, if that makes sense. And that's, that's how it happens. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, Elna. I'm trying to Im imagine all of this. So what does this mean? I know it might not sound like much two tiny little photons, but it is quite groundbreaking because now that we know that they do in fact entangle each other, this opens up a whole other range of possibilities. We didn't know that light can interact in these ways. So we're not sure how else they might interact with each other. And one possibility is that photons could be used to perform extremely fast, incredibly complex quantum computations. As I mentioned before, quantum computing is a word that's thrown around science circles a lot. It's hard to understand even when you try, but this could open up a lot in, in that sense. And so our no ordinary computers would be nothing in comparison. And it's also very interesting because it wasn't just two photons. They were triplets sometimes. And a lot of matter does not even join in triplets. Mm -hmm. So we really didn't expect light to do this. And I've got to say, though, these researchers have been looking at this since 2013. 
So it's been five years just to find out this. It's probably going to take a little bit of a time until we have anything concrete. Hmm. This is quite interesting. Hmm. I think I should look into this myself when I do have time to better understand this concept. Who knows? I mean, a new kind of light. I was very surprised. Mm -hmm. What do you have for us, Bridget? Well, uh, we have a pluripotent stem cell that holds the key to preventing cancer. So, a new study has found that possible keys to regenerative medicine uh, is the cornerstone in creating a vaccine for cancer. Okay, so what are these pluripotent stem cells? These are cells which essentially work as soldiers and then they they train the immune system to fight cancerous tumors. Uh, so the key findings in pluripotency is the is that the uh, the ability of these cells to form a tumor called teratoma which is composed of different types of cells. Okay, so these magic cells, where do they come from? All right, so what happens is that um, cell samples are collected from uh, the skin or the blood of an animal or even a human being, and then they are treated with a pool of genes, right? And then they make them to rewind their developmental clock so that they become pluripotent. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this pluripotency, it comes, it stems, it stems from, uh, stems from the word uh, plural, uh, pluripotent, because essentially what this means is that these are master cells, so they are able to make cells from three uh, basic body layers, and then they are able to produce any cell or any tissue that helps the body to re- to repair itself. Wow, I can just imagine all the possibilities that come from this um how are these cells made okay so they are made in the in the lab the pluripotent cells are presented with other proteins that are encouraged to break down into specific cell populations to treat damaged cells or tissue thereafter they are injected into animals and ips IPS cells, as they would um, abbreviated, they work as an anti- anti-cancer vaccine because of the, um, their surface, they resemble many cancer cells in their developmentally immature property structure. So that means when they uh, put them against each other, they look very similar, which is why they are being used in the study. So their features are free from growth restrictions built into their mature cells. Okay. Yeah, and um, the director of the Stanford's Cardiovascular Institute and professor of cardiovascular medicine and radiology, Joseph Wu, says after an animal was immunized with genetically matching IPS cells, the immune system could be triggered to reject the development of tumor cells in future. Okay. And another study carried out on a, on groups of four of, of four mice. One of the sets received matching IPS cells and all the animals in each group were injected once a week for four weeks. Finally, a mouse injected with a, a, a breast cancer cell line was transplanted into that group of, of, of mice to observe the, the potential growth of tumors there. Then, a week later, all the mice had developed tumors of breast cancer cells at the injection site where it was injected initially. Although the tumors grew differently according to the controls used, the, the, the mice, um, the, 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 reaction, the reaction was quite uh, different. However, two of the cells that were, that were um, presented there, that were... They were presented, they rejected these uh, breast cancer cells and they went on to live a year after after the, the tumor transplantation. Okay, and what does this all mean for the future? That's always a big question. Yes, that's a big question. And, well, essentially that, that means that um, these IPS cells are very viable in cancer vaccine, um, in fighting cancer as a vaccine because of their strong immune response. And these findings indicate that one day these cells may serve as a true patient-specific cancer vaccine, although trials in humans have not been carried out as yet.
Mm, this is the thing always with animal trials. Just because it works in a certain animal doesn't mean that um, that it'll necessarily work in humans. And there's obviously a long path ahead for these kind of studies. But if I just think about the HPV vaccine and, and how that has saved so many women and girls from cervical cancers, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we could have never even thought of that kind of thing existing. So this definitely gives me hope for the people suffering of cancer, but it's still early days, I think. Very true. I agree with you. Thank you so much to our producer, Bridget Lepeho, for giving us the news once again. And next up, with the Winter Olympics underway, we'll tell you all about how snow is made and how climate change is coming in and messing it all up for us. This is The Science Inside with Elna. Welcome to the show. My name is Elna Schutz. And remember, you can find us on Facebook as The Science Inside or tweet us at VARFM, hashtag Science Inside. And the Winter Olympics have been happening once again. I know of so many people who are not huge sports fans, but bring them some ice skates. Bring them some girls twirling around on the ice or like flying down a ski slope. And people just love it. But it can only happen when one very important thing is in place, and that's snow. Lots of it. Even though we in South Africa don't get a lot of snow, it's not something that we think about a lot. It is an important part of life in other places, such as Europe. Snow sport tourism isn't just fun. It brings in people and money to areas that wouldn't have it normally. And the melted snow provides drinking water for very many areas in the world after the snow has melted obviously it flows down into rivers and lakes and so forth but the future does not look as bright and snowy unfortunately especially in light of climate change so i wanted to find out more about this just because it is so foreign to us but it's so integral to the human lives of other people around the world so i spoke to somebody who has studied this dr marius meyer is a junior professor at the ernst moritz and university in greifswald germany he is focused on economic geography and tourism and has studied this but before we get into the nitty-gritty of the things let's first understand what you need in general for snow to happen Moisture and cold temperatures must come together. So snow clouds usually occur in the context of larger weather systems and the most important of which is the low pressure area, which typically incorporates warm and cold fronts as a part of their circulation. And in addition to these front systems, there come some additional and local productive sources of snow, like for example the lake effect or also the sea effect. And elevation effects, especially, of course, in mountains. So the snow, the, the, the lake and sea effect can be explained like if you have a more or less warm source of water and then um, cold air comes, um, this can produce enormous amounts of snow at yeah, limited areas and elevation effects can be explained um, that uh, yeah, clouds climb up, try to climb literally over the mountains and then they can pass and then um, precipitation occurs, which can be of course rain and if it's cold enough then snow. So now not all snow is equal. I didn't quite know this because I'm a South African child, but there are all kinds of snow. It depends on the shape of the flakes, how it falls, and how it collects on the ground. Some snow snow falls in balls, some falls in flakes, some is powdery fluff, um, and then other kinds melt and refreeze, so it becomes grainy or icy. I was never ready for the amount of different kinds of snow. And this matters when you're skiing or snowboarding. But generally, snow is snow in terms of what it is made up of, in terms of being, of course, frozen water. The problem is that you can't make snow fall when and where and how you want it. So organizations or companies that are dependent on snow, even whole villages, have to make a different plan. 
Yeah, that is a, is a very interesting uh, question from a tourism management perspective because it brings uh, together um, the physical conditions and the meteorological conditions together with the needs of the tourism industry and or from the, from the, um, the needs of a, a mega event like the Winter Olympics. So in earlier times, it was the people just could pray for snow and uh, usually it came. So what they are doing now is that they rely heavily on artificial snowmaking. And it's also uh, done with the Olympics without artificial snowmaking. The IOC wouldn't uh, allow uh, the resort or the destination to organize the event because the, as the level of insecurity would be too high. So what they are doing is um, when it's getting colder in autumn, they start their snowmaking system and this is basically working only with uh, forcing water and pressurized air through these snowmakers or snow guns as um, you can say and this production of artificial snow requires low temperatures and um, a low humidity they produce snow let's say half a meter or 1.5 meters depending on the steepness on the ground structure and they produce the so-called base layer snow so this base layer is of course the basis of snow for the slopes and yes beautiful natural snow is great but actually not really necessary which makes me think can we not have like Winter Olympics here in Zanzi? Wouldn't that be nice? But sometimes at the Olympics, they even shovel their natural snow away because it's not the consistency they want. How crazy is that? It is great that this is all possible, but fake snow is, first of all, very expensive financially, but there are also a lot of costs and arguments around the costs in, in terms of environmental effects. There are several uh, issues. The first one is the energy consumption, which is quite considerable. However, usually the lowest temperatures are at night. And at night also the energy costs are the lowest because the level of consumption overall is um, at a low point. So they usually use uh, electricity which wouldn't be used for other purposes at night. The other big issue, of course, is that the high water consumption of these machines is incredible. And it usually comes at the time of year when water levels are at their lowest when you're trying to prepare the slopes. So to get around this, artificial lakes are made and water is rooted from elsewhere. The water does also flow back into the natural systems when melting. And generally, thankfully, there are laws that there are not allowed to be any chemicals added to artificial snow. But this may not be the case internationally. Fake snow is all good and well, but you still need cold temperatures. And climate change is making that a more difficult reality. The most severe environmental uh, impact of artificial snowmaking, in my opinion, is the fact that you um, most of the time have a yeah, considerable landscape impact. I just mentioned these artificial lakes. They could be nice. And some people even recognize them for natural lakes and say, oh, what a nice mountain lake. But the problem is, uh, yeah, you change the landscape and usually everything is bulldozed on the ski slopes because you don't want to waste your costly artificial snow on uneven surface, you know. So everything is bulldozed and this really uh, yeah, has a large impact on the landscape and can, can lead, but mustn't, to erosion processes, for example. So there are also problems around drinking water and the economy of places that depend on tourism. Less snowfalls um, change the seasons in a way because plants sprout early and animals might hibernate less, which messes with the natural order of things. And all of this is because, as I was saying, climate change is making um, is making it that there is less snowfall. And... I have actually never thought about this because we so easily think of climate change in terms of droughts. But there's not that much that we can do to mitigate this. But for the snow resorts, at least there are some answers. And one solution is coming from South Africa. 
there are some innovations coming even from South Africa, which are used now in European glacier ski resorts. Um, as, I, as you know, of course, South Africa is very well known for its mines, for gold mines, etc. And uh, in some of these mines, uh, which go very, very, very deep and where it's very, very warm and hot for the workers, for the miners, they use artificial snow produced by a so-called snowmaker from an Israeli company to cool down the working situation down in the mine. And this Israeli um, company, uh, yeah, well, 10 years ago, they transferred this technology and offered it to ski resorts because this machine is able to produce snow even um, if the outside temperature is about 30 degrees Celsius. So the problem from the, of the um, uh, regular artificial snow producers is that they still require cold temperatures. But if it's getting warmer with climate change, then also the possibility of producing artificial snow decreases. So this uh, snowmaker from South African mines is now used by some of the Austrian glacier ski resorts, um, which start very, very early in the skiing season in the end of September and early October, when it's still quite warm. So they use this machine to prepare their slopes, which aren't covered by glaciers anymore because of the glacier retreat due to climate change. Isn't that funny that South African technology is uh, used for glacier skiing in the European Alps? It really is crazy. From a South African mine to saving uh, European ski slopes, I would have never thought. And of course, as I mentioned, the whole reason why this is important is not just because Europeans want more snow, but it is actually becoming less and less. Have a listen to Marius explain the effects of climate change. The influence of climate change is a very interesting question. The influence on, on the snowfall. Well, whether atmospheric conditions and climate have always been and will always be very variable. This means that also past records of snowfall and snow cover show a high variability. However, the trend of decreasing snow cover and the higher share of rain among the precipitation and lower to mid altitudes in Europe this correlates quite well with the trend to warmer winters. And I can tell you the example of the Bavarian forest. This is a mid-mountain range on the border between Germany and the Czech Republic. It's only about 1,500 meters high, so lower, even lower than Johannesburg is located. And in this mid-mountain range, which is quite high elevated for southern Germany, the average annual temperature has risen by 1.8 degrees between 1970 and today. So this means the climate is already changing quite fast and it's uh, highly likely that this is um, mostly caused by a man-made um, greenhouse effect. That means by man-made climate change. This man-made climate change is, is affecting so much and not just the droughts and food security and the heat in places like Africa. But the truth is that even cold, snow-dependent areas like the Alps are affected and influencing people's lives and their livelihoods. And, of course, the Winter Olympics, if you are watching them and you love it, um, let us know on social media. It's hashtag Science Inside on Twitter and Facebook. But for now, stay listening because next up, we are looking into our feature on the show where things get a little bit crazy, a little bit silly. This time, Unscience is about diamonds on other planets and how... Who knows? Your next engagement ring, if you're expecting to get engaged in approximately 40 years, it could be from a different planet. Who knows? Find out next on Unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Yes, you are indeed on The Science Inside. My name is Elna Schutz. And for all of those just tuning in, yes, it's an entire hour of nerdy science radio but don't worry it's not just about boring things 
I hope that it's never about boring things. In fact, because it is now time for Unscience, where we look at the stranger side of research, and it's where we look at weird and wonderful things that scientists are doing. They're spending time and effort and money on this, and sometimes it just sounds a little bit crazy. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Diamonds are forever are beautiful all blingy and sparkly and these are just the diamonds from our planet apparently planets other planets could be mined for their generous mineral richness Bridget Lepere our producer is with me in studio once again Bridget what comes to mind when you think of diamonds I'm thinking living la vida loca luxury glamour in all its splendor and slaying all the way Wow, you you are the kind of girl I would want with me if I was ever to buy a diamond. You're getting so excited. I do have a bedazzling piece of information to share with you. Like I mentioned earlier, what if I was to say to you, scientists have been looking into the idea of mining diamonds, not on Earth, but on a distant planet in the Milky Way. I would say, say what, Elna? That sounds ludicrous. That sounds like a notion that comes from a sci-fi movie or something. I mean, the resources one would need, the time, I mean, you know, not to even mention the money. Yeah, are the diamonds really worth it is my question. (laughs) Even if you got got a giant one, is that really what we need? But, okay, scientists have been looking into this and specifically the possibility of mining diamonds from a planet 40 light years away named 55 Cancri E. Not the prettiest name in the world, but okay, we'll, we'll let that slide considering it has so many diamonds. It is also known as Janssen or the Super Earth. It's twice the size of the Earth and 10 times heavier. It was discovered in 2004 around a nearby star called Proxima B. And this 55 Tancri E is composed mainly of carbon in the form of diamond and graphite. And because of the ever-evolving world of science and technology, of course, the reality of harvesting diamonds from exoplanets, remember that's a planet that is around a star or sun that's not our sun, this could become a reality for tomorrow. But it comes with quite a heavy price tag and a lot of hard work. So over a couple of decades, attempts will possibly be made to get content from these distant celestial bodies to either aid in space colonialization missions, gather information, or gather minerals to support Earth's ever-growing needs and our ever-growing population. So companies are also interested in getting in on this, not just scientists. They are interested in mining asteroids between Mars and Jupiter, which have an estimated value of about about 700 quintillion dollars. That is a lot of zeros. <laughs> Quite a lot. So hang on, Elna. How do they plan to achieve this, really? It sounds a little bit crazy. This is really what we're spending our time and money on. But... Yes, the thing is it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not even in the very near future. We're looking at closer around 2045. And in fact, NASA has already developed a solar sail design for a long-range satellite. And a group of European scientists have also proposed the creation of 50 nanosatellites that would voyage into space to collect data from about seven asteroids. These satellites are called the Asteroid Touring Nanosat Fleet, which is a pretty cool name, I think. And they will catalog about, as I said, seven asteroids each, which in total would make 350 asteroids. And they would collect all of that data, bring it back, and we can analyze it. But from today, it'll take about five years for the fleet only to be ready to leave Earth and start surveying asteroids. So it's going to take quite a while. And each one of these miniature satellites will be equipped with a tiny telescope and a spectrometer, which is an instrument that measures all kinds of things like wavelength, mass, energy and refraction using light. And this will allow the satellites to determine the mineral composition of asteroids 
just by examining the light emitted or reflected by them. These satellites will also have so-called e-sails, which will allow them to cruise on solar wind. Sounds pretty cool even in itself. And the entire project is estimated at around $70 million and will take about seven years for the first demo flight to reach space. Okay, I get this analysis on these asteroids and everything but now you're going down slope what happened to the information on the diamonds i want the diamonds (laughs) move aside science where's my bling (laughs) as you would expect the project will take in space take place in space so it's not going to be your traditional sort of pickaxe situation when it comes to the mining and in fact it's not entirely clear how they're planning to do this but I would expect that they're using this asteroid touring nanosat fleet in some way to to mine and then bring back um, all of the material. Because what does it help you to have a whole planet if you can't bring back the diamonds to us in you know a usable condition? Or what is if those diamonds are somehow different? What is if they I don't know are poisonous? I'm not sure. Uh, they probably won't be poisonous because it's just carbon. But you, you get my point. There's obviously a lot of scientific questions that need to be answered. And according to experts, it is not something that is impossible to accomplish despite the number of years the experiment would take and the costs implicated. So they're clearly looking into it. But Bridget, my apologies for raising your expectations so high. But I don't think you're going to get a diamond through asteroid mining tomorrow. Oh, what a bummer. Unless, unless you're only planning to get married in like 2050, I think maybe just go with a good old-fashioned earth diamond for now. Okay. I'd have to settle for that. Do I have a choice? I don't think so. Not that much. <laughs> uh, unusual. Unlikely. That was unscience. Next up, behind great science, when, whether we're talking normal diamonds or diamonds on other planets, behind all of this great science, there are people. People with plans and ideas and that are usually really proud of their work and we love on the show to look at the people behind the science and that's what we're going to do up next with professor miller unusual unlikely unscience this is the science inside with elma Welcome back to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and this is the one hour in the week where we love looking at science and in particular the humans behind the science. We don't want it to just be big words and big concepts up in the sky. We want to show you who is actually behind this, who is making the discoveries, who's working long long hours to just expand our knowledge and hopefully Found some solutions for some big problems that might just affect you and me. Today on the show, we are speaking to Professor Robert Miller. He is the director of the Center of Reproductive Neuroendocrinology, or the RNE, in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Pretoria. And he has received so many accolades for his just groundbreaking research specifically in the fields of anatomical and physiological interactions between the nervous system and the endocrine system oh i hope i pronounced all of that correct Um, and he did most recently get awarded with the african union kwame nkuma scientific award so it's quite incredible to have you on the line with us professor miller thank you so much Thank you. So, you have done quite a wide range of work, and I want to just focus on a couple of studies. And one in particular looked at how certain proteins and neurons interacted with reproductive hormones. And you carried this out on on dogs, but mostly, of course, on humans. And I'd love to know how these results were used in the treatment of various reproductive concerns. Yeah, so what we work on are um, hormones in the brain in an area called the hypothalamus. And these um, small hormones then go to the pituitary gland and regulate the pituitary gland's production of reproductive hormones, um, which uh, the listeners will know sex steroids are the most commonly known. So in essence, if you can modulate the production of these um, hormones in the brain, then you can modulate reproduction. 
And so things like corruption are targets. But most common is that many diseases are dependent on sex steroid hormones. For example, prostatic cancer is dependent on testosterone. Breast cancer is dependent on estrogen and so on. So by modulating, by developing drugs, can um, impinge on that system and reduce the sex steroid production, um, you can treat these diseases such as prostatic cancer, breast cancer, and common women's diseases like endometriosis. But that's quite incredible. How exactly do you go through the process of understanding what, what kinds of drugs will be effective for a specific... Yeah, yeah so for example, in the history of, of my work, is that we isolated from many thousands of brains these hormones, and then we also cloned the receptors for the hormones. So in understanding the interaction of the hormone with the receptors, we could then design molecules that we call antagonists, which will bind the receptor and not activate it, thereby decreasing the signal to stimulate sex hormones. So just for the ordinary listeners out there that do not have a degree in this, can you explain to us what this might mean, what your research means in terms of breakthroughs for, uh, for some of the concerns that you've mentioned, like endometriosis, like various forms of cancer? Yeah, so as I mentioned, our, our main activities are in understanding the system the actual molecules and the receptors they bind to and the signaling that comes from them and then designing um, drugs that will um, modulate that system. And so <laughs> we've been involved in quite a large number of projects doing that and some of these drugs are now used very extensively. So, for example, um, the, the main hormone I work on is called gonadotropin-releasing hormone and analogs of that are now the main treatment for prostatic cancer. So, uh, and another example I can give you is that very recently, um, new peptide hormones in the brain were discovered, and one of these is called neurokinin B. And we proposed that neurokinin B would actually, if you made antagonists in teeth, that would be able to treat hot flushes in postmenopausal women. And indeed, that is proven to be the case. And then pharmaceutical companies are now pursuing that particular angle. Hmm. Another area of your work within this that I thought was really interesting was around um, cloning a protein responsible for releasing a reproduction-regulating hormone, which specifically i would love to understand how that related to in vitro fertilization yeah okay so in fact that target is the same target as as the one for prostatic cancer which is in essence that you can make these analogs which will inhibit the reproductive hormone production now in in vitro fertilization what one does is supply the pituitary reproductive hormones to develop a developing oocyte. But the problem with it is that there's a spontaneous surge of this hormone that causes and then you lose all the oocytes because you've already been checked from the ovary and you've gone in too late. So this particular antagonist, gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonist, is now used in most IVF um, cycles to inhibit the production of hormone that is going to cause ovulation. So you give hormones which stimulate the development of the oocytes, the eggs, and then at the same time you give a hormone that stops ovulation, and then at your choice of timing, you then give that hormone that stimulates uh, ovulation. Okay. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's incredible the work you've done. And hormones specifically are such a complex thing in the human body. I wish you could, um, I, I would love to know what you would say to our listeners 
that they don't perhaps know about their hormonal systems. Is there perhaps a takeaway you can you can give us? Well, I suppose the the main takeaway is that this part of the brain that we work on, called the hypothalamus, is an integrator of just about all body functions, whether it's thyroid, whether it's adrenal, whether it's reproduction. And get signals from the body, like uh, whether you're exercising, whether you're eating a lot, are integrated in this hypothalamic area to control most of human body function. And so, therefore, keeping the homeostasis, the normal balance in the hypothalamus is very important for human health. Mm. So don't underestimate your hormones, is what you're saying. <laughs> um, I'm saying that your your hormones drive everything in your body, your good health and your bad health. And you must have the right production of hormones to have a healthy lifestyle. Right. Professor Miller, just to move a little bit from the from the science to the to the scientist, what is the part of your job that is most rewarding? Well, I, I often say to my students that the lovely thing about doing research is it's not like any other job which has often the humdrum of the same sort of thing every day or slightly different. When you do research, you get the chance to climb Everest every day. But many, many times you fail and you don't summit. But it's extremely exciting to know that you are covering unbroken ground every day of your life and to have some young people around you who are equally enthusiastic and excited about the fact that they might be able to climb Everest today. Hmm. And research, as exciting as it is, it takes a lot of time, effort, money and just manpower to keep trying when, as you're saying, it might go wrong. You might find out a hundred ways to not do it before before you you find the correct solution. What are some of the challenges that you're faced with? Yeah, well, there is that. I mean, it's, it's very demanding to be a research scientist, but the rewards are fantastic because you become a part of an international network. There'll hardly be a country in the world where there isn't somebody that you collaborate intensively with and that when you meet them, you immediately are having a conversation of common interest. And and so I think that that's a great privilege to participate in the possibility of discovering new things. It is very hard, and many people fall by the wayside, and it's not for everyone. It's also very hard um, to get sufficient funding often to achieve these things. But the, as I mentioned, to develop an international network is the most important thing that you can do. And second only to having very good cohorts of exciting students who are enthusiastic with the ideas and contribute to the development of the of the breakthroughs. Hmm. And this just shows you again that Science is really for anybody who's interested in, in getting involved and and understanding things that in the past we've we've only been able to dream of these kind of, of cures or drugs and every day there's something new that's being discovered. So Professor, just lastly, if there's still something that you would love to um discover or um or find a solution for in your career what would you dream of well this the the newest work that we're doing is the one that that i am particularly excited about and that is that uh, many diseases in humans result from mutations in the genes and the particular receptors that i work on which they constitute about 80 percent of all the signaling that's going on in the human body. And those receptors, if you get mutations, then you have dreadful diseases. For example, the blindness called retinitis pigmentosa is because of a mutation in the receptor for light, which is called rhodopsin. And what we've discovered is that we can develop small molecules that will get into the cell and repair the problem 
that the receptor does not get to the surface of the cell. And we've done this receptors. And I think this is going to open up an incredible new field where we can treat people with genetic mutations who suffer from these dreadful diseases. That's that's amazing. We can only hope that the future keeps finding, that in the future we keep finding these kind of solutions. And it's so wonderful to hear your part in, in them. Thank you so much. That was Professor Robert Miller, who is the director of the Center for Reproductive Neuroendocrinology at uh, University of Pretoria. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you very much to speak Bye. Unfortunately, a slightly bad line with Professor Miller there, but I'm sure you, as I, have the takeaway of not just that our hormones are incredibly important for our body, but that there are people right here in Mzanzi looking and finding solutions for diseases and problems. And it's, it's just so incredible to hear the scientists behind the science. Uh, keep listening. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. That is our show. It flew by once again, as always. And we've had a wide range of things on on the show today. It started with the white and fluffy stuff. Oh, snow and the Winter Olympics. Um, But we weren't talking just about snowmen and ice skating. We really looked into the realities behind how many communities in the world live off of snow, whether that is the business of tourism and snow sports or whether it's drinking water from melting snow and looking at how climate change is affecting that. Then it was all about diamonds in our unscience feature. But not diamonds from here, not your good old, you know, De Beer diamonds. No, we looked at diamonds from other planets. And then lastly, speaking to Professor Robert Miller about his work in terms of um, finding out links between hormones within your body that actually have, have found some amazing solutions for diseases around those topics. So a big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show today, including... Marius Meyer and Professor Robert Miller. Our team behind the scenes is our producer Bridget Lepere and Take by Kutlano Serame. If anything that I just said about the show really tickles your fancy but you missed it, don't worry. Do not despair. It is all on journalism.coza forward slash science. Journalism.coza forward slash science really nice and easy or find us on social media it's the science inside on facebook or at val with m hashtag science inside on twitter the science inside is produced by the vets radio academy funded in part by the south african department of science and technology my name is alma schutz and i will be with you again next week the science inside monday from 6 to 7 p.m on Listen to the Science Inside podcast on www.journalism.co.za.